paper is column, Professor Colin Tarman of UCD, who's director of the Erie Institute. He's and well known to everybody here, published extensively on uh, labor economics and education. He also is going to focus on strategies of the future for all the past. Also, thank you. Um, yeah, but I, I think this follows, I hope, quite neatly from um, David's. By its nature, um, what I want to discuss is, is a bit more medium to long term. It, it's sort of enhancing the long term productivity of the economy. But of course, we've lots of short term problems. So this is firmly, uh, in a sense, maximizing subject to constraints, which is uh, what all the economists do, um, and forces us into some choices. So hopefully I'm going to talk through some of the planned choices and alternatives, which might make more sense, uh, not just because we're in a crisis, but because the, the sort of returns are likely to be greater from those um, approaches. So roughly speaking, the, I'm going to give a sort of a two-slide which describe I guess my, my sense of the framework for an economics of education story. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about kind of early years policy, current directions and alternatives. Uh, primary, secondary education, where the investment is going around class size. There's probably no great surprise of what I'm going to say there. Um, and then finish up with talking about the higher education strategies, um, looking at the kind of fees issue, um, and trying to kind of in an area which is not terribly my, my, my area of strength, but I think it needs to be addressed because it's been raised an awful lot, which is the, the kind of R&D investment and in research infrastructure, the smart economy issues that are uh, floating around out there. Uh, so the, the framework that I kind of adopt, this is quite a famous and, uh, and oft used and used uh, diagram courtesy of, of James Heckman from the University of Chicago. Um, which describes, roughly speaking, in a sense, where we, where we think we've got to in relation to human capital investment from a policy perspective. So in other words, you've got a rate of return to investment. You spend most of your time pointing in my eyes, and I one time I need to do that. Okay, rate of return to investment in human capital on the, on the virtual age on the So the idea really is that the greatest returns come from the early investment periods. Uh, the, 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 the lowest returns come from the, the periods, in fact, that David's just been talking about, from, a, from a, an economics social return point of view, uh, against any opportunity consequence. So invest in the young, and in a sense, that's where it is the least, in fact, Heckman would say, no equity efficiency trade-off, and you know, public investment should tail off. And of course, this is where we're in different times, and indeed, I think Heckman himself would agree that, because he's written this paper with us that did this, the graph, which shows that, of course, with investments and with different scenarios, those curves could move, right? So that any, with the early investment, you may get this kind of shifting out of the, of the return to the other types of investment. So this isn't the kind of a static environment that we're in. Uh, it's in a, a rate of change. In particular, the, the job training initiatives may indeed have a much greater bang for book in the period we find ourselves in, which relates back precisely to David's point. So in a sense, the key point is still that early investment is a, is a great idea, but across the spectrum, there's sort of rather pessimistic view that you know, it's almost pointless. Some, one, one person referred to it as almost palliative care for, uh, for, for, for the unemployed later on. That, that may not be as pessimistic an issue as needs to be seen. That's the framework. That's probably, I think, two slides to summarize a lot of where 
the economics of education is right now. The spectrum of investment in human capital is uh, a key plank of a lot of recent debate. Um, huge chunks of uh, the, the McCarthy report address it. Colin uh, had a class, it can't be here right now, so we were just joking earlier. He'd be standing up now wiping tears from his eyes as Harman spends his talk talking about the children. But I think he's in spent an awful lot of his report talking indeed about the children and about what should be done in terms of the public spending uh, uh, infrastructure for that. So, the early years policy, uh, I'll start with, given that we, we think there's kind of a, the biggest return there. So, the, I guess the, 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 sort of the expansion of the issue around uh, the economics of education is the kind of economics of childcare, which is broadly speaking, the quality childcare is good for outcomes, Outcomes, in my, in, in my sense, being uh, attainment, educational outcomes, and long-term economic impact on the individual and society. We know also that kind of bad childcare is damaging, and we also know that quality childcare has the most impact on low SES, low socioeconomic <coughs> status kids. The, uh, the budgets, we know sure which one, but one of them this year, uh, certainly scrapped the, um, the early child supplement, which is in place um, as a kind of a, a bolt-on the child benefit infrastructure. And uh, indeed, that was a very sensible and shouldn't have been there in the first place. But the alternative, in effect, a kind of a, uh, uh, an investment in childcare time in uh, registered or, or signed up pressures of childcare providers is the replacement initiative. Um, and broadly, uh, the, 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 the question was, in effect, fit into a framework which is known as SHIELTA. Uh, which I think of as sort of a bit like an ISO standard uh, for childcare providers. So there's a registration, a baseline assessment, and a validation at provider level, but it isn't a curriculum as such, uh, nor is it a quality control framework for either the individual or provider. So the one thing I think to, to, to address in relation to the sort of Heckman point on the high returns is this. The underpinning economic logic for the early childhood results um, is largely based upon uh, US evidence. Uh, often, in fact not often, almost totally, based upon the long-term follow-up of a very small cohort of children uh, in 1960s Chicago, uh, the Perry Preschool and other initiatives. So in effect, these you know, 70 or 80 kids have, through the long-term follow-ups of the style that um, David talks about, um, have defined a lot of the public policy discussion and debate around why you should invest in early years. I say this as a big fan of early years investment, but I think we do have to be careful that, as one of our colleagues, Andrew Lee at Australian National University in Canberra called, made off like returns that are quoted. Um, at the Green Party convention, there was one of the delegates was uh, scurrying in talking about the need to invest in education because of a 17 to 1 return. And that's the 17 or 16 and a bit return comes from. It's roughly speaking, $11 of that $17 or $16 comes from crime cost savings. So the big driver of the sort of 17 to 1 type returns are criminal justice savings. Uh, the next chunk, the yellow, are special education, uh, welfare, income tax, various initiatives. And then the third, which is a bit we probably as economists think is the most likely, is that these people have more opportunities to earn more, etc. 
uh, and that's where that comes from. So the, it's not clear for a start that you need to be clear, I should say, that where the, the sort of source of these returns comes from. A big chunk of it, uh, like the vast bulk of it, comes from criminal justice savings, um, based upon the sample of kids from 1960s Chicago. And it's also not clear that this can be replicated in Ireland or indeed Europe, particularly where we have a well-established welfare infrastructure in place. We are trying, uh, my colleague Orla Dawn in particular is uh, working hard on a, probably be the first new cohort uh, addressing a similar issue in North Dublin, in Darndale. So, you know, I, I'm a firm fan of, of early investment, and certainly by, by any normal return standards, Every euro in there does have a very large return, but it's certainly not likely to be 70 uh, or anywhere like it. So in that sense, the, the problem from a current policy plan point of view is that, as I said, the critical issue with, with, with childcare provision and its impact from a kind of an attainment and outcome point of view is the quality. Uh, if it's bad quality, it will harm the kids. If it's uh, and even when it's good quality, the impact is greatest on low SES kids, largely because wealthier parents probably have a greater impact on their kids than a childcare provider can have. And as little in the shield to framework without going into it that will do anything to level that quality playing field. It's not what it's designed for, and it's not where the resources are going to go in terms of investing. The other point is that, in a sense, a common problem with uh, labour market policy in Ireland is its evaluation. How do we know it's going to be effective? Uh, the rollout of the program makes evaluation difficult. That's just a fact, not much we can do about it. There's certainly things that we can do to evaluate the impact of this program. But I guess there's three kind of categories of folks that I'm thinking of. You've got low SES kids, for whom there's an infrastructure, community crashes and so on already in place. Um, you have high SES kids, parents and, and their children, who are paying for, I guess, perceived, if not actual, quality childcare, like Montessori and so on. And maybe don't need the assistance financially in terms of child development. And we've, then we've got the kind of mid-SES, working parents will get some support, non-working parents will also be able to avail of this. But it's doubtful whether we get the sort of support necessary to generate some sort of labour supply response from that program. So my question from a kind of a policy point of view is, well I think that the highest returns are coming from this investment strategy, I do think there's a potential for kind of dead weight from the point of view of the, of the investment. The alternative, for example, would be to invest in that quality framework uh, that would raise and enforce the standards, including capital development, maintain the community pressure issues, which you're going to do anyway, so there's no net change in cost. Uh, and instead of the, the, um, the program, invest, consider a sort of a working families tax credit style to deal with assist working families in this domain. So the difference from a policy point of view, is that we're making the same upfront investment perhaps, but the ongoing costs are likely to be lower. Because this in effect, the alternative is a targeted early years initiative rather than a universal, and any universal initiative in this space has much lower returns than the made offerings, uh, even if we can achieve them. In terms of the uh, primary and secondary education space, well, the big, fallacy uh, is class size. We've just seen a uh, uh, reversal of uh, uh, class size moves, which were to effectively reverse the reductions in class size that happened over the last couple of years. Um, 
which was the direct recommendation in the McCarthy report. And uh, we've just seen that reversed as part of the new programme for government, the programme for ongoing government. Irish class size are certainly large, on average, by OECD standards. But, and our outcomes are about, or even above in certain cases, average, based on things like PISA and other assessments. But there's little connection uh, between these two facts. It doesn't prove anything about the productivity or success uh, over their OECD counterparts. And in particular, in marginal terms, moving from a class size of 28 to 29, or back again, will have little measurable impact on the outcomes. Again, by outcomes I mean child attainment, long-term economic impact, etc. But it's an incredibly expensive strategy. We already have bottlenecks in the teaching profession, which are a problem. Uh, and as I said, the revised government for government reversals lack any convincing evidence base. We also have a lot of talk about the physical space issues. I think it's absolutely clear that the sort of extreme outcomes in that issue, the sort of fabled, rat-infested prefabs, etc., are just not acceptable. But the idea that physical space has this big impact on child outcomes and child attainment is again not a terribly well uh, evidenced result. Uh, the biggest public investment program pre-economic pre crisis was building schools for future in the UK. BSF is effectively a, a rebuild or renovation of the entire school stock. Um, and we've been involved, at Geary, I've been involved in, in designing the evaluation uh, infrastructure for that program. So a BSF, which is, as I said, by, by any standard, a massive investment in mean, a total rebuild or total renovation of the entire system over the next decade, uh, suggests modest gains from major rebuilding or renovation of school stock. So again, uh, we don't have any evidence in that work or in the literature generally uh, that I would think is based upon convincing kind of methodologies. So we have two class sizes aren't an issue that need the sort of public investment uh, if we're concerned about maximizing the return now or in general, whether we had a crisis or not. And the physical space issues uh, are an issue in the extreme, but uh, on average uh, aren't major issues. So in terms of what does work, um, Money and performance are not as aligned as we might think. Ireland spends about the same as a lot of other countries, and considerably more than some others, and gets much lower math scores, for example, on things like PISA. Indeed, the good example is the US. Texas and California are similar to demographics, but Texas has much lower spending per student, as students are about one year more advanced in test scores than their California counterparts. So clearly, as some schools are better than others, we know very little about the reasons why that's the case in Ireland. We get variation between, variations within, uh, and private schools are not more universally uh, uh, achievable, attaining results than, than public schools. Uh, and some teachers are better than others. The US evidence, again, is that the median students at year zero, if you can think of it that way, are in the 90th percentile three years later with high-performing teachers, and the 37th percentile three years later with low-performing. Huge gap opens up depending upon uh, the teacher quality in terms of test scores. And similar results in the UK around pupil attainment is four times more varied at classroom level than at school level. And that teachers that are most qualified in their subject uh, tend to teach better and get better outcomes. 
So in terms of class size issues, um, based on any reasonable assumptions, we have a very sizable population of children that are not reaching their potential due to what I would call intergenerational problems. Uh, problems of persistent disadvantage, which is a bigger problem and related very much to the, to the early child strategy. That's what that early child strategy is trying to do. But we have equally a sizable population of able kids that are not progressing as we might expect. They're not reaching their current potential, uh, what I might call intragenerational mobility. <coughs> and this can be dealt with. This is precisely what the current policy should be trying to deal with. We desperately need to invest in the data infrastructure to find out why uh, schools and teachers differ. Data will be needed that's public and transparent, so we need to lose the hang-up on leak tables. Um, and educational experiments uh, do provide hints. Angus and Lavi's work, for example, talks about golden handshakes in particular disciplines like maths and science, continuing professional development structures for teachers, and performance pay all had demonstrable and measurable uh, positive effects on child outcomes. Um, small, I guess almost behavioural economics type tricks um, do seem to work as well. The educational maintenance allowance in the UK essentially is a rebranding of child benefit. Um, so cost doesn't, you know, ch doesn't change at all uh, the exchequer cost. What it means is that from 16 to 18 it's the kid that receives the money, not the parent. And that child benefit uh, trick, or rebranding, if you like, of child benefit, yielded very sizable changes in participation rates in the target population, i.e. getting this, this cohort to A-levels, uh, again in a targeted rather than universal way. Child benefit in the UK tapers off very quickly by, on the basis of family income, something I guess we're toying with doing here. So this, is, this sort of EMA investment targets folk very clearly and the low SES kids who aren't participating in a way that we would expect given uh, the population. Uh, and that cost neutral doesn't do anything in terms of exchequer costs, but has very significant outcomes. And indeed, even in relation to what happens there or afterwards, uh, there's a lot of promising results which brings us back to this issue of private versus public schools aren't the key issue. The new era evaluations at UCD, new era is a an access program at the university, funded through philanthropy at that, as are almost all of the access programs in the university sector. Um, my colleagues Kevin Denny and Orla Doyle are about to release uh, their findings from an evaluation of New Era. And they show that the, the children made it to UCD through the access programs, typically on some sort of reduced points initiative, do just as well. They're, in fact, if anything, they outperform certain cohorts who enter through the conventional point system which perhaps also says something about the leaving cert as a signal uh, as much as anything else, but it does prove that these kind of disadvantages can be circumnavigated and overcome uh, with a bit of thought and a bit of targeting. Okay, so again, in the spirit of uh, making a mess of um, things, the, uh, I can certainly see various uh, uh, problems with what we've done in this revised government for government. The fees debate has rolled on and has started to complete uh, as a bad. There is no causal evidence. I'm sure I'm an economist, I have a particular thing in my head is what I mean by causal evidence. Uh, which I, if I want an econometrics lecture, I could bore you for the next hour, but I won't. But we 
we can't find any evidence that the abolition of fees in the mid-90s had the impact on the participation that we thought, and there's no reason to suspect that their return would have adversely impacted on choice. It just would have provided the resources to do something different, more targeted, and more focused. The early results suggest money is not the major issue, like the access program evaluations deal with that. Institutions have little control over who turns up at the gate each September, but are, in effect, being penalised and indeed pilloried uh, over the SES mix of their students. So fees needed to be returned for lots of reasons, and the debate has been well worn out on that. I would make one point, or two points. My preference was always a deferred repayment system based on earnings, which I think was, the, was the, where the minister was heading. But recall also that the, that the UK experience with the return to fees there five or six years ago was coupled with an increase in the exchequer contribution as well. So the total spend by the UK government on higher education went up, as did the additional contribution from the students. Institutions should have been able to set their fees very little by programme degree. Uh, they needed to be able to raise additional funding without the sort of euro for euro taxation which goes on, and they need to be able to break the civil service relativities and negotiate performance contracts, particularly with academics, to respond to the market uh, and to respond to their productivity. It sounds like none of that's going to happen, uh, and that's a real shame. In terms of the McCarthy report and R&D, um, I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning what drives the investment in Fourth level Ireland, I should stick a trademark sign beside that. I don't think any other place that talks about fourth level except Ireland. Um, attracting foreign direct investment seems to be one motivation. Uh, generating spin off companies, which is where a lot of university uh, uh, hierarchies spend their attention. And scaling up of the existing SME sector to sort of uh, create a Nokia, as we seem to want to do. Um, and the, the classic the story around R&D is the Grilicus one, that research creates a stock of knowledge that enters the production function and improves the productivity long-term of the economy. Most OECD countries do subsidize R&D, both private and public R&D, right? R&D expenditure by the firm, and indeed uh, through the university um, kind of grants, etc. Uh, public support may crowd out uh, private support, which is one theory that that column was forward. Uh, or may support research that would be carried out anyway, sort of a deadweight loss kind of argument. Uh, there are some Dutch experiments in this area where we, you see provisions to support startups, i.e. payroll tax waivers, um, which show that about 100 euro of government money generates another 50 to 80 euro of additional R&D employment. So there's a limited amount of evidence that supports uh, R&D uh, investment treat, uh, pre, uh, policies. Uh, but the recent debate in the McCarthy report has been pretty vigorous, uh, largely born out in the opinion page of the Irish Times, questioning the value based on the stated aims of R&D investment. So some issues seem logical, consolidating of the research funding infrastructure, like creating a, an Irish version of the National Science Foundation rather than the multiple agencies that we have at the moment. But one of the key problems, or one of the key things which I guess the McCarthy report responded to, was to take something like Science Foundation Ireland. So SFI's mission statement says it is to support areas of greatest strategic value to Ireland's long-term competitiveness and development. And I guess the issue is, 
How can a government or agency choose these areas? And indeed, as Colin points, can Ireland be an importer of this technology anyway? It's not clear that the, the current debate about the RD side has been solidly rooted in evidence, and equally not clear that the evidence exists, actually, but either way, it's after the fact evidence. But to sort of move the debate forward a little, we do have evidence that private spend on R&D has increased more quickly than public spend. So we're perhaps seeing crowding in and not crowding out. And that's been a similar experience in other countries like Israel. Um, and uh, private R&D spend, in effect, the idea of free rides on the review process of the public R&D investments. So the investments made by SFI in a particular uh, research group get sort of, in a sense, provide a cue mark which, which encourages the private investment. But that does complicate any sense of what the social returns are. Um, the assessment problem also is that we need to look at outputs. They're immediate, people like me, academic papers. Second order, people like me, citations. Then broader, profit or prominence. You know, is it a good thing that we have two or whatever universities on the Times higher list or whatever those issues are? Orange policy almost certainly raises the quality of jobs, perhaps, but there's not a lot of evidence that it raises the quantity, which is what we need to see. And increasing the number of science graduates will not of itself promote R&D. Time frames issue, it's a long and variable lag in mapping to the production function. The unit of analysis measures relative to regions or measure rates of change. If everybody's going up, well then it's, we're going to get stuck in a particular space. And then the counterfactual, what we what are we not, what would we like to observe? Marginal versus average returns, interdependence of research groups, etc. So the only debate I think I would summarize needs needs to be addressed. We don't really have the evidence that we need to see uh, the sort of uh, criticisms that um, that the McCarthy report makes, although I think there are a lot of valid uh, points. My final point relates to the sort of PhD market, which might seem at odds with, to some extent with the sort of level or area in which uh, David's talking about. But just from a recall, uh, the SSTI commits us, science and, the Strategy for Science Technology Investment commits us to dealing with doubling the number of PhDs and postdoctoral researchers by 2013. That's a hard task at the best of times, and it's disproportionately difficult across the sector. For example, UCD and Trinity combined have about half the total number of PhD students in the country. So the capacity for doubling those numbers is a challenge. Uh, the key issue with the graduate student market and the PhD market and the postdoctoral market that, that McCarthy raises is the absorbency of the labour market for those increases. Uh, large amounts stay in academia as postdoctoral researchers. The public sector is a large employer of PhD graduates. That's true in many countries. 52% of all the graduates in the UK go into the public sector in their first job. And perhaps short term is not a big problem. In a sense, maybe we could do with a few PhD economists, for example, in the, in the public sector. But in a sense, there may, there's a great potential for a market failure, but the business sector may not evolve to hire PhDs due to a sort of mismatch in their expectations of what's required. So to finish, that's my final point. The correcting this potential for market failure is not going to happen from a kind of a field of dreams approach by doubling numbers. We need incentives to place and encourage choice of topics that are the most societal, public, and private impact. Get your wrong is very costly. Cornell evaluated a what we call a graduate education initiative, something like 100 million US dollars almost, which showed really poor matching of students to topics and supervisors and impact, and actually much longer durations of study because the students had enough money to hang around the university long enough 
and not rush themselves. Not doing it is costly. Uh, a point that my colleagues made in a recent uh, grant application that we were making was that a very well-funded uh, graduate initiative in economics, for example, would cost a tiny fraction of the peak to trough fall in GDP. Um, uh, but it might have prevented a, a chunk of that fall. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> and um, mismatch, uh, mismatch in the labor market generates lower wages, it generates lower job satisfaction, and it generates a higher turnover in employment. If we're to do something distinctive, we're going to have to understand what attracts or repels students from the fourth level agenda. Uh, if they're expected to work in academia, the returns will be as disappointing as McCarthy thinks. Uh, and this is a human resource management issue in a sense that's not well understood, particularly with the sort of top-down, team-setting structure of policy in this space. So finally, the Innovation Task Force, which is our latest initiative in this general area, and issues such as the UCD-TCD Innovation Alliance, which seems to uh, be bur uh, bubbling under a lot of these new developments, as, as well as lots of other kind of university and IT sector initiatives, will be well advised to really consider these kind of human resource issues. Uh, otherwise, their plans really won't amount to much. Yeah.